break on me. Back up. Hold on. Put that there. Okay. It is hot, huh? Wow. You know, last time I was here, my cousin was getting, got married and we were having, we were dancing and eating food here. That was like in 1989. It was Bruno's. And um, I am, um, give you a little bit of background. Um, I was born in Argentina and uh, when I was five, uh, lived in New York for a couple years in the 60s. And then uh, my mom and I, we just continually got sick, so we moved out here to California where my, um, my grandma and my grandpa and cousins lived. So I grew up here in Culver City and um, really in the Southlands, so this is kind of like home, kind of my backyard. Uh, one fond memory that I want to share with you is uh, one of the things that uh, we Argentinians love is soccer, and we call it football. And um, I remember going to Mar Vista Park and playing there. Some of the best memories of my life. And so coming around here, there's a lot of, I don't know, emotion um, just growing up as a kid. And so I want to thank you for having me. Um, let's pray. Lord, God, creator of the heavens and the earth, as your people, we come to you, and we need you to minister tonight your truth to us. And Lord, I thank you that in my weakness, your power is made perfect, so I ask that once again, you would demonstrate your faithfulness to your precious ones here through me tonight. And I ask that you would do this for your honor and glory and for our joy in you. Amen. Um, there's a couple of books I want to recommend to you. One is called A World of Difference by uh, Kenneth Samples. And what he does is um, he deals with Worldview Claims. How do you test a worldview? This is an excellent book for what we're going to be doing in the next four weeks. And he has another book, which is called Without a Doubt, Answering the 20 Toughest Faith Questions. I want to commend these two books to you for several reasons. Number one, he's a very good writer. He's concise, he's clear, and he gets to the point. Uh, hopefully, I can be concise and clear and get to the point tonight as well. But uh, so I want to I want to recommend I want to commend that to you. And um, tonight, session one, according to my notes, what was session two? Yeah, you said you guys had a session. T- so what was session one? You did. Okay. All right. Calm down. Session two. No, this is session one. So, okay. We want to answer the question or 
Do I have to believe anything at all? Do I? And I want to point out the significance of this lecture, class, talk, whatever you want to call it. Because in our culture, people, and even Christians, are continually dealing with something called hope, despair, and the issue of knowledge and truth. How does that all relate to us? Um, In his introductory chapter of Christian apologetics, uh, Christian philosopher Doug Grothius says this, Knowing the truth and living according to its requirements should be the hope and aspiration of the reflective person. Now, Jesus said the greatest commandments are two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You do these, you fulfill the law. That's what we want to try and help equip you to do, is to love God more with how you think. Because how you think literally governs how you live, how I live. I may say one thing, but I'm thinking another. How I think will affect how I live. He goes on and says, truth is not determined by counting noses. To begin to answer questions regarding ultimate reality, we need to think hard ponder and assess the options in light of the sharpest reasoning and the best available evidence. He goes on and he says this. He considers our present reality as humans and he notes that people are starved for meaning in life and are pressed between hope in what lies ahead and the despair that engulfs us as our hopes collapse before our eyes. All the while we find ourselves trying to make sense of reality And yet we're experiencing anxiety, loneliness, and we all know that death awaits us. So in one sense, we face death alone. And in another sense, we are all together in this quandary. People want to find meaning and purpose in their life. You cannot do that according to Scripture by thinking that truth does not matter, by thinking that you make up your own reality. Okay? He continues and says this, hope is pointless without truth and knowledge, okay, which is justified true belief. When we live the implications of what we know, we have a powerful remedy for resolving the battles within between hope and despair. And a cultural climate is no laughing matter. Uh, several weeks ago, I was reading an article from Stand to Reason by the guy who was going to be teaching this class, uh, Jay Warner, who is a speaker and author. He's a retired detective. And um, here's what the article says. Have you noticed the slow but growing compromise within the church? It's harder and harder to get two Christians to agree on anything related to sexuality, the exclusivity of salvation through Christ alone, or even the historicity of Adam. We are a divided family, even though we share the same canonical foundation, which is the Bible, and have over 2,000 years of family wisdom to guide us. 
I predict it'll get worse. I think the church will embrace the truth claims of the culture at an ever-increasing rate because we have failed to make young persons our priority. Okay? So he goes on and explains. It's pretty obvious that young people are leaving the church, especially during the college years. It's also true, however, that some will eventually return to church as older adults. When you examine why young people leave and compare it to why they return, you start to understand the reason the church is struggling to maintain its classic orthodox teachings. When surveyed about the reasons they stepped away from Christianity, most young Christians say they no longer believe it's factually true. In their book, Soul Searching, The Religious and Spiritual Lives of American Teenagers, Christian Smith and Melinda Lindquist asked an open-ended question of young people, and it was this, why did you fall away from the faith in which you were raised? Here's some of, here's some of the responses of why they left. It didn't make any sense anymore. Some stuff is too far-fetched for me to believe. I think scientifically, and there's no real proof, too many questions that can't be answered. And uh, uh, young people are walking away in large part because they don't think that Christianity is true. And if there's one thing I want to impress on your soul tonight is this. If Christianity is not true, we are wasting our time here. I have wasted my life. So has Sandra and Brad and many of you who have invested your time, your energy, your treasure into supposed kingdom work, right? This is the most important issue that we can deal with because it'll affect all of what you come to know. It'll affect how you proceed as a pastor, as a worship leader, as a mom, as a dad, as a grandpa, how you go about making disciples. What you know, the things that you think are most important, those are the things you are going to focus on. He goes on and he says, only 35% of church dropouts will eventually return to church by the age of 30. Now he says, why do these few returnees come back at all? It blows him away. Not much has been done by researchers to answer the question, but the same LifeWay study provided the following data, and here it is. 51% of returnees said they were influenced by the encouragement of either family or friends. 34% simply felt a desire to return. 28% felt that God was calling them to return to the church. 24% had children and felt it was time for them to start attending. 20% got married and wanted to attend with their spouse. What's conspicuous? What is obvious by its exclusion? None of them came because they think Christianity is true. They only came for practical purposes. You know what? The atheist can come to church for practical purposes too. That's not good enough. When people leave Christianity because they no longer believe it is true and only return because there's some useful aspect of Christianity, I want to say this. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is not biblical Christianity. This is not historic Christianity. So as believers who want to be faithful to Scripture, faithful to our Savior, it is paramount that we do not drink the Kool-Aid of the culture. 
and believe, I make it up as I go. What's the meaning of life? The meaning of life is anything you want it to be. Does that sound familiar? Now you, the person, the creature, are the measure of all things, not God, the creator. I think it's in Genesis chapter 3 we have a problem there, don't we? Where the creature decides to tell the creator, I don't need you, I'm going to do things my way. And we find ourselves here. Not a good idea. The historic Christian faith, this is all preliminary, okay? The historic Christian faith is based on the God who is there, on the God of creation. There's essentially four big ideas in the Bible that if you look at these, you can put these under the categories, under these categories. And number one, there is creation. This isn't in my notes. There is creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then further in Genesis, there is what's called the fall, where rebellion entered through Adam and Eve. Then we have a whole Bible after Genesis 3, where the unfolding of God's redemptive plan, redemption, is being shown, finally culminating in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And then there is what's called the consummation where God is going to wrap up what he started. The new heavens, the new earth, no more tears, no more crying. New heaven and new earth. Those are the big ideas in the Bible. And as believers, it's really important for us to know that. I'll tell you what, the person that's excited about any given topic is the person that understands it, right? I have a friend of mine. He's a non-believer. He is a very, very sharp guy. Ask him anything about bicycles. Anybody here cycle? No? Okay. One person. Okay. Ask him anything about cycles. My gosh, he'll tell you. He'll just go on and on and on. Tell you about, you know. What kind of a bike to get? For what purposes? You want to do mountain biking? You want to do? You, you want to go cross country? You want to? Um, you know, whatever it is you want, he under, he knows, and he's got a passion for it. One of the reasons I think so often we as Christians, many reasons, but one of the reasons why we we're not passionate for God is we don't know Him as He has revealed Himself in, in here. We rely so much on our quote unquote experience. That it trumps what God has revealed here. And that ought not be. Why? Because the word of the Lord is that which created. The word of the Lord is that which saves. The word of the Lord is that which upholds all things. Hebrews 1 says that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. John 1 says that Jesus is the word made flesh. And as word, what's he doing? Revealing who he is. Revealing who he is. So what's the scriptural basis for apologetics? I, I, didn't, I didn't know what we were going to call this. Um, so it's called Faith Has Its Reasons. And as I was telling um, Sandra, uh, there's a book uh, called Faith Has Its Reasons, uh, which I uh, commend to you if you want to, you know, get into it more. 
Um, but um, throughout the church's history, the issue of faith and reason has caused, um, how can I say it, a trouble within the camp of Christianity. Different Christians hold to different views of the place of faith, what it is, the place of reason. And, um, and, and so that's a huge topic I'm not really going to even touch on except what I just said right there. But when we're talking about the scriptural basis for apologetics, because these are what apologetic classes, um, it ha- it's for every believer. Um, essentially, apologetics is this. It's the rational defense of the Christian worldview as objectively true, rationally compelling, and existentially or subjectively engaging. Let me unpack that. In other words, it's objectively true, meaning it's a reality outside of us. Rationally compelling, meaning that it does not make any contradictory truth claims. And existentially or subjectively engaging means that it answers the deepest questions that we humans have. So, for example, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says this. Uh, Verse 16, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are all men most to be pitied. What is Paul saying, essentially? He's saying if this didn't happen in space-time history, like I said earlier, we are wasting our time. Jesus, in John 17, in his high priestly prayer, speaking to the Father, says this, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Verse 17 of that same chapter says this, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is true truth. So not only does God, not only do we come to know God through his word, we also become more like Jesus through his word. We become more like him. The Lord completes the work he began in us through what? Through his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit in Christian community. How do you like that? Christians, I know so many Christians, and it grieves my heart, that they're they're not part of a fellowship. They're just, for one reason or another, they're hurt, they're distraught, they're angry, they're bitter. And they forget, you know, Jesus loves that brother and sister that you don't get along with. Jesus died for them. Moreover, Jesus in John chapter 1, He is the Logos, the truth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus says this, if you continue in my Word, then you are my disciple, and what? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Peter, I think it's in Second Second Peter, he talks about that they did not follow cleverly, cleverly, cleverly uh, devised 
tales when they spoke about Christ. The Bible is filled with the concept of truth. Jesus and the apostles were preaching it all the time. Jude 3 says this, Contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. Of the many things that that is saying is this, that there is a body of gospel knowledge that has already been given and believers are to contend. That means you're getting dirty. That means you don't have to be nasty. But that means that you prepare yourself for the war of ideas. Jesus did. Paul did. Peter did. 1 Peter 3, 15-16 says this, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. This is in the context of suffering. Where believers in the day of Peter were experiencing tremendous suffering under Nero. And he's telling them, live in such a way in the midst of suffering where people, outsiders can see your confidence in Christ. See, the goal of any teaching is not just getting information. It's worship. That's the goal. It's being transformed into the image of Christ. That's the goal here. That should be the goal in any endeavor that we as believers take on. Moping around does not give Christ a good hearing among non-believers, believer. You're having a hardship. You're suffering. You're not alone. Grab hold of God's precious promises, which He has given to you, so that you might fight. So why is Christianity resisted? Uh... A lot of reasons, I think. But I think the core reason is our human pride. Our human pride wants to be ultimately the master of our own destiny. We don't want to uh, submit to a higher authority, ultimately our creator. We don't want to do that. And yet, um, a lot of times the reason people resist Christianity is not because there aren't good responses to their uh, intellectual skepticism. It's because it's not just about their thinking. It's about their hearts. It's about the disposition that says, I don't want you, God. And so we need to understand these things are taking place when we're talking to people. And just because somebody goes to church doesn't mean they're Christians. Don't assume that everybody here at Westside Christian Fellowship is Christian. Don't do that. In my church, I don't assume everybody's saved. 
God knows, but I don't. So engage people that are in church as well. <sighs> Lastly, why, why are we so weak? I mean, come on. Why is the church so weak in America? Where's our cultural voice? Where are the movers and shakers that are believers? For the most part, our culture, they will tolerate anybody but Christians. So what do you do? Well, first of all, you don't want to hold your beliefs in an unstable and in an uh, uh, uninformed way. Th- that makes us weak when we do that. You don't just want to believe because your, your folks did or because you know, your pastor, because you believe your pastor. You want to know this word. It's the ultimate authority. God has spoken through it. So, we can't even talk with people that bring up difficult questions. We feel weird. We feel um, scared. And um, as a result, um, our voice is muted in the marketplace of ideas. So, if, you know, if uh, I believe in things, uh, I think Christianity does um, um, meet the deepest longings of, of our hearts. I think the truth of Christ incarnate does answer the deepest vexing questions we all have as people. And because I do, we need to understand that if we're going to get good at this, if we're going to get good at thinking more biblically, more Christianly, then we're going to need to do what um, anybody has to do if they want to get in shape. You've got to make a decision which apparently you guys have. You're here. That's good. And you got to exert energy, time, money. The stakes are high. People all around us are going into an eternity with God as their judge instead of their advocate, instead of their friend. And we as believers are all called to make disciples. So if you, if you want to look at this class, because I do, this is part of equipping you to make disciples. So let's, let's, um, let's get to work here. Um, I'm going to be covering four big ideas today. The first one is, is there such a thing as truth and can it be known? Uh, the second one is, why do people believe versus why should people believe? Uh, fourth, what kinds of religious beliefs are there and um, no, that was third. And fourth, and should Christianity be believed? And I've already kind of shown my hand on that, but only if it's true. But we'll talk about that. So preliminary considerations, I want to talk, first of all, a word on beliefs. Do I have to believe anything at all? That's the title of this session. It should be self-evident that to us, being part of, a, being part of the human race means that we have a thought life. Uh, which includes our beliefs. Um, what is a belief? A belief is uh, something that I trust or am confident that is true. That's what a belief essentially is. 
It is a state or habit of mind in which trust or confidence is placed in some person or some thing. And everybody has beliefs. I don't know if my parakeet, no, my, my, my bird has uh, beliefs. But I know every human being has beliefs. I know my kids have beliefs. Belief is unavoidable. Here's the issue, though. Are all beliefs created equal? Are they all created equal? Regardless of what you believe, you've got to understand and know that our beliefs are serious. The outcomes of our beliefs are serious. Think of 9-11. And all of a sudden, it brings it into, into focus. Our beliefs are really important. They will govern how we live. But are they all created equal? Are all beliefs created equal? Do they all have equally the same persuasive power? Do they, are all religious beliefs the same? Are all religions essentially saying the same thing? You say potato, I say potato. You say tomato, I say tomato. It's all a matter of semantics. It drives me nuts when people just say that flippantly because they don't understand what they're saying. No, it's not just semantics. There's actually an objective meaning to what I'm trying to communicate don't belittle it by just saying it's just semantics. You get the picture? These questions have to be answered by all of us. First of all, for the Christian, if you want to understand your faith better so that you might honor Christ by living it and so that you might winsomely engage the culture and so that you might get answers to the doubts in your own soul, who in here knows everything? Exactly. Do any of you... Wrestle with doubts of, of your faith? Yes. And, and that's all right. Just don't address those doubts. There are answers to your doubts. Don't leave them in the corner to get all dusty. Now, if you're a seeker or if you're skeptic, if you want to make sense out of life better so that you might believe not a lie, but something that's actually true and real so that you might more kindly engage people that don't believe like you do so that you might get answers to your doubts than like your Christian neighbor, this issue of belief is monumental to your endeavor as well. We're all in the same boat. Okay? Okay. Is there such a thing as truth and can it be known? And to answer that question, I'm going to look at three things. I'm going to look at the necessity of logic for discovering truth, then we're going to define what we mean by truth, and then we're going to look at the enemies of truth, and we're going to focus on one enemy specifically, which is relativism. But first of all, logic is necessary for discovering truth. How many of you have had a logic class ever? Logic, a, a class in logic? Okay, all right. Um, I didn't have a class in logic till I was really old, you know. But all of us use it. So what I'm going to say right now, just... Sit back and relax. Let it sink in. So logic has to do with a, a well-functioning 
uh, ability to reason. It is ordered. It is systematized. It's intelligible. So when we're dealing with logic, we're dealing with the study of the rules of exact reasoning. That's what we're doing here. And the study and the application of the rules of inference to, let's say, arguments or to systems of thought. That's what you're doing when you are engaging in logic. Okay? How am I doing, honey? Am I going too fast? No? Okay, so we're going to look at four primary laws of logic. The first one is, it's called the law of non-contradiction, which says this. A is not non-A. Um, in other words, no statement or proposition or assertion can be both true and false at the same time and in the same sense. And whenever that you, you see that there's a contradiction, the red flag should go up, there's a falsehood. Okay? Like if I were to tell you, you know, I've got a square circle in my car, I can't wait to show it to you. you should, your red flag should go up and go, huh? All right? Um, now, uh, why is this important, the issue of this in the same, um, uh, the same time and in the same sense? It's, it, 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 it's, it's important because there are worldviews that deny this law. For example, um, Buddhists, Hindus, and uh, New Agers, many of them hold to what's called monism, which essentially that God is all and all is God. They eradicate distinctions. Okay, so what you have here is that distinctions in their worldview, it's just an illusion. It's not real. And in order to refute, for example, somebody like me who holds to that, I believe, in the law of non-contradiction, they have to use it to refute me. See that? There are, they, I say there are distinctions. They say there aren't any distinctions. You just use the law of non-contradiction to try to refute the fact that I am saying there are distinctions. By the very use, you just shot yourself in the foot. You can't, you, you can't, you can't do it. You have to use it. It's kind of like trying to go into the ocean and not getting wet. Water and wetness go together. You cannot not experience it. I mean, all things being equal, you go in with your bathing suit, okay? You're not in a submarine, okay? So, so when we're talking about this, this law, this law of non-contradiction, we, we need to understand that it is a first principle of thought or, or of What's called epistemology was just a fancy word for how we know what we know. So remember, whenever this law is violated, whenever the law of contradiction of non-contradiction is violated, there is a falsehood. Okay, so like I said, square circles, um, the sound of one hand clapping, one hand can't clap, two hands clap. Those are contradictions. The second law is the law of excluded middle. And this law essentially says this, A or non-A. Another way of remembering it is it's either true or it's false. It's not both. Okay? So um, the reason this law is important is because it helps us understand whether something is in fact taking place or not. 
For example, um, if I tell my wife that it's raining outside and it actually is raining outside, then it is true that it is raining outside. This is simple, isn't it? Right? Which means that the opposite is false. That it is not raining outside when in fact it is raining outside. That makes sense, right? All right. The third law, it's called the law of identity. And it states that A is A. Uh, Sandra is identical to Sandra. Why is this important? Because um, it helps us get at who's responsible for getting an A on the test, uh, being hired or fired or laid off, um, identifying who committed the crime, the law of identity. I don't know if uh, you guys remember Home Alone. Uh, with my kids growing up, we would watch Home Alone every Christmas season. And Kevin um, was uh, getting in a little bit of trouble. He steals a toothbrush and he's running out. And Billy, the, the, the shopkeeper's uh, you know, helper, goes out there and he points the finger at Kevin and he looks at the officer and he says, shoplifter. It's the law of identity. Okay. And then fourthly, you've got the law of logical or rational inference. And here's, and here's how this one goes. If A is B and B is C, then A is C. Example, if Trish is my wife and my wife is the mother of Alexandra, then the mother of Alexandra is Trish. So these laws are part of the law of non-contradiction, the law of identity, the law of excluded middle, and the law of inference. This is part of what the universe is made of, which also argues for God. It argues for a designer. It does not argue for chance because of the order. Anyone. Someone might object that what is being employed here is Western logic, um, not Eastern logic. But, but again, like I said earlier, to object here, you have to use the law of non-contradiction to try to refute it. And you, and you just can't. You get, you get wet. You jump in the water, you get wet. You try to say there's no distinction. You've just made a distinction. You've, you've made a negation. There is no distinction. Well, I'm saying there is, so you've just made one. Anyway, so that's the laws of logic. Uh, now we're dealing with defining truth. And essentially, the definition of truth um, is what corresponds with reality. Truth is that which corresponds with reality. For example... If I say the grass is green outside, and in fact the grass is green outside, then what I've said just comports to reality. Um, biblically, by the way, this is, even though technically the Bible doesn't say this is what we hold the definition of truth is, no, it doesn't do that, but essentially that the, the, the correspondence theory of truth is the view of, of the Bible. 
that there, there is a God and that he created and that we are here. That you have emotions, you have feelings, you, you know, you're alive and then there's a time that you die. These are all things that the Bible uh, supports. Okay? So when it comes to truth and uh, as it corresponds with reality, you might say, you might have somebody object, for example, you know, you might think Adam Sandler is the greatest comedian in the world. And, um, you know, I uh, don't think he's that great of a comedian. Okay, so what are we dealing with here now? Well, it's true for me that Adam Sandler is the greatest comedian in the world, but not true for you. So we got a problem here, right? It leads us to our next topic, which deals with, you know, the difference between objective truth and subjective truth. This is really important for us to keep in mind when we're trying to get at knowing a state of affairs, when we're trying to get at the truth of anything. First of all, I want to tell you three things that objective truth is not. It's not an unemotional, impersonal, detached attitude to the facts. We've got to remember that truth is what we know. So there isn't this unemotional, unattached disposition, impersonal disposition that we have um, to truth. Secondly, to objective truth. Uh, secondly, objective truth doesn't mean that it's known by everyone or it's even believed by everyone. And here, majority does not always rule. It just doesn't. Third, objective truth does not mean that it's publicly provable. For example, you may have attitudes toward people that nobody knows but you. It's not accessible to anybody else, but it is to you. So objective truth does not mean publicly provable. So, so what do we mean by objective truth? It's that which is independent of the knower and their consciousness. For example, uh, any Laker fans here? Cool. Okay. One, two. All right. Three. All right. Good. Come out. Come out. Um, I remember uh, driving home in uh, 1988 when uh, the Dodge, uh, the Dodgers, the Lakers, uh, just finished completing a back-to-back their their repeat uh, when they beat the Detroit Pistons. And uh, also in, you know, 2000 to 2002, was it? 2001, 2002. Then they three-peated, right? I remember that. Now, for example, if if that's true, whether or not, for example, my family in Argentina believes in it or not, knows about it or not, likes it or not, it has nothing to do with them. It objectively happened. See that? So that's objective truth. Subjective truth deals with our personal tastes. Um, For example, uh, food. Uh, I like food. And I particularly like Mexican food. And I like having very spicy peppers with my Mexican food. I'll start crying as I'm eating my, for example, burrito. And my wife thinks I'm utterly crazy. How unenjoyable can that be? 
Uh, for her, uh, what is true for her is, no, I'll have a little bit, but I do not like it when I'm crying. That is not a pleasurable experience for me. But it is for me. I don't know why. I don't understand it. But it's true. And I confess that to you. So in a nutshell, the difference between subjective truth and objective truth is this. Objective truth is true whether I feel like it or not, believe it or not, approve of it or not, am aware of it or not. Subjective truth deals with my personal tastes. Now, the importance of this, this distinction, I think, um, can't be understated. Uh, suppose you need heart surgery. You're going to go to the guy who thinks believes he's a doctor, but he's a quack. He's got the diplomas up there, but he's a farce. Are you going to want him to you know, do open heart surgery on you? Or are you going to want somebody that actually knows what they're doing? They don't only believe in operating on you. They know how to operate on you. And when it comes to ultimate issues, this is paramount. Let's bring it here. Is there life after death? Is there a God? How can I know? Is Jesus Christ the only rescue from damnation? What is the meaning of life truly? These are ultimate questions. And when we're dealing with the things that are ultimate, we should not be flippant at trying to understand them. Which, by the way, means... You're going to have to work at it. If you, get good, if, you, if you are somebody who prays real well, I guarantee you I know one thing, at least one thing. You have prayed a lot. You ever get around somebody who, boy, you get around them and they start praying, it's like, man, you feel like they really know God. And Oh, my gosh. You ever experienced that? I've experienced it. Well, one thing is for sure. That person has taken time, has taken the time to pray, to think well, same thing, just to think better and get stronger takes time. So there is such a thing as truth, and uh, we got to keep in mind that in order to get at the truth, we must uh, understand the, the four laws of logic. Understanding the correspondence theory of truth. And it's really important to make the proper distinctions between what is subjective truth and what is objective truth. This is an attainable task. We can do this. You know why? Because you're created in God's image. And unless you have some kind of a physical handicap that does not, uh, that prevents you from, from thinking uh, well, you're all smart. I don't think we give people enough credit. I don't think we realize that the fact that people are created in God's image, one of the things that that is, is that we have the ability to reason. It's the thing that makes us different from all of other creation. But truth, when it comes to truth... A lot of times it's not welcome. Truth has an enemy. What time is it? Five, five minutes? Okay, five minutes. 
right, I'm going to just stop. Can we stop right now? Okay. Ten minute break? And if you got any questions, I'd, I'd be glad to, if I can answer them, I'd love to. Anybody got any questions? Yeah, yeah they, we're going to talk about it. They relativize it. I'm going to be talking about it. That's true. Remember, the, the, the whole goal of, you know, getting at the objective truth is not to just say, oh, wow, I know this, 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 and this. You know, I know all this information. That's not the goal. The goal is worship. The goal is to know, to know God, to walk with and to know Him is not just to have all this information. You know? Okay. Uh, yeah. Can you take a question repeat it? So it's not okay. Uh, yeah, repeat that question again. I'm sorry. Oh, I, I used the term, uh, we believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. Yes. And I said that it's objective truth, but it's also subjective truth. Yes. Okay, yeah, we believe that... Um, Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. That's objective truth. But we also subjectively hold to that it is true. Of course, because you're the one doing the thinking, right? So there, there's, there's objective truth, but you're the thinker. You're the reasoner. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. 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 Okay, so, what's your name? Lynette. Lynette. Okay, so Lynette, are you asking, um, is it a good idea for, for pastors to give reasons for faith? Uh, from from uh, uh, Sunday mornings or Bible studies? Or, absolutely. Absolutely. Sure it is. And, be, be, and the reason... Yes. Yes. No, no, this is this is this is encouraging. I love hearing this. Yeah, it does. Um, there is nothing like knowing what you're talking about to give you um, a facility, a, an ease to come in and out of conversation with different people. Um, it's kind of like um, the, the analogy of, a, um, of the iceberg where you just see the tip of it, but really the massiveness, you don't see it's below. And um, as Christians, when we are... Talking to non-believers, for example, and they have objections, the more we know clearly, the more we will actually be able to help them if, 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 they, if they actually want to have a conversation. Um, and, but we, we, we will also be emboldened. We won't, be, um, we won't cower as easily. And, uh, you know, who wants to be bested in an argument? I don't. 
Who wants to look like they don't know what they're talking about? I don't. You know, you don't. So what's the remedy? You just grow a little bit at a time with your knowledge base, and you build on it. You know, that, yeah, that, that's, I agree, yeah. <laughs> yes. What's your, what's your name? Don. Okay, Don. Okay, Don. So you, what you're asking is, um, how how do we um, deal with the cultural war of ideas. I'm just going to rephrase it, okay? Let me see. The cultural war of ideas, which basically says, well, you believe that Bible because you're a Christian. Well, that that, that to me is useless. I don't believe that. And therefore, um, it is not going to inform how I um, believe, uh, for example, uh, uh, views on marriage, uh, views on, um, uh, let's say, uh, abortion, uh, that's not going to inform my my view. What's going to inform it is my political persuasion. Is that? What's that? Okay. Well, because I, I want to answer your question, but I want to I want to get it. So. Okay, yeah. The, the issue of truth and how we as Christians navigate in our culture today. Gosh, you guys are on the west side. Yeah, you're right in the thick of it. Okay? Um, Romans 1, chapter, uh, Romans 1, verses 18 through uh, uh, 20, talks about that God has given the knowledge of himself, okay, through what has been created. Let me just read this because... Um, there's a few things as believers we really want to make sure we're clear on. Here's one. The wrath of God's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. So God, at birth, puts the knowledge of himself in every human being. Number one. Number two, we, non-believers and even Christians, we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. How do I do that? When I go off and willfully sin? I want to think of a ball you're trying to it's buoyant you know you're trying to suppress it underneath the water okay you're suppressing that that ball you let go and it, it pops up okay that's what that's what that's what we do as as people who do not want to submit to our creator we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness and um, but but the fact is God has made himself known through the creation through the creation, when you, when you evangelize, don't start with Jesus died on the cross. Start with creation. 
start with creation. That's what Paul does in Acts chapter 17. Because you've got to be able to explain to somebody that they don't think they have a need. You've got to show them their need. Creation. God. Fall. Ooh, rebellion. Ooh, we got a problem here. Then redemption. The solution to the problem, which is Christ. Okay? They know. People know. They know. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this. Um, and that's why I brought these two books, and especially uh, this one, A World of Difference, Putting Christian Truth Claims to the Worldview Test. If we start thinking in worldview thinking, it'll be much uh, easier to navigate in our conversations. Worldviews essentially uh, color the way any individual views all of life. In, in, a, in a worldview, among other things, You've got your view of God. Who is God? Okay. Secondly, you've got your view of what is ultimate reality. You know, what is real? What is not? Thirdly, your worldview is informed by what you know. It's got, it has a knowledge base. Right? Fourthly, your worldview will have a certain view of how you see human beings. Okay? And lastly, your worldview will have an oughtness to it. Morals, what we ought and ought not do. So if I were to say those, those five things in, in, with one word, worldviews have a theology, a metaphysic, an epistemology, which is, talks about knowledge, okay? an anthropology, talks about human beings, and ethics, the oughtness. What's that? This is, the this is what worldviews uh, have. This is what makes up a worldview. And, and usually people aren't versed in, in worldview thinking, but it's really helpful. It is so helpful so that you can see when somebody's talking, you go on a hiking trip, for example, and they say, you know, all religions essentially, you know, lead to the same thing. There's a worldview there. That's conch. What's that? Sure, sure. The first one is a the theology, which is your view of God. The second one is metaphysics, which is your view of reality. What does it mean to be? Third, there is your epistemology, which is your view of knowledge. What you know, your knowledge claims. Fourth, it's your anthropology, your view of humanity. And fifth, it's ethics. It's, uh, it deals with morals. You know, how we ought and ought not be. Okay? Yes. This isn't on these, what I'm telling you right now. A lot of the stuff I'm telling you is not on my notes, on these notes. But I don't mind doing that if, if they want to. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, we are going to be talking about worldviews next week. Okay? But I just wanted to throw that out. Because I think it's important to what you're asking, Don, as far as, you know, how do we deal with, you know, people that just don't hold that this Bible is authoritative to speak to their lives? Yes. Sure. The fifth one is ethics, which has to do with, you know, morals, what we ought and ought not do. What are you eating there? 
Mexican? Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I am... Um, oh, gosh. The last 10 years I've been going to this little church. We're now in Redondo Beach. We're called Sovereign Grace Fellowship. And... Um, uh, I've gone out uh, witnessing. We have a witnessing table that we take to either Wilson Park um, or, um, you know, the Redondo Pier or even uh, Hermosa Beach. And, and I've gone, uh, I think, like four times. Uh, Bob Draves is the one who, who leads it. He's done a fantastic job. But uh, when I went to uh, Hermosa Beach, uh, these guys, you know, it was just, there was, there were, everybody was going to get drunk, right? We're on the Strand and... We're pretty far away from Hennessy's and, and you know, in the pier, but everybody wants to get loaded. Anyway, we, um, we, we set up the, 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 the table where we say, you know, if you answer these 10 questions, uh, you get $5 in a Bible, okay? And it's a real $5 bill, okay? It's a real $5 bill. Anyway, the whole purpose of that is to just kind of, you know, take the edge off of the uncomfortableness of engaging and being engaged by somebody. You know, it's, it, it's, it can be really... Intimidating for people. Anyway, um, these uh, these guys came up, and um, one was a, an SC. Um, he was a, a, doing his studies in microbiology. He was a Catholic, and he was you know just living like hell. And he was very open about it. And then the other guy, uh, he's going to be going to Germany. They're they're both scientists. Well, what was really cool is as we started talking. A lot of the things that uh, people hold to be true, for example, you know, in, in the scientific um, uh, disciplines, uh, one of the things we don't realize is just like in theological disciplines, in the, in the, in the discipline of theology or, or philosophy, even in the scientific community, everybody doesn't agree on everything. They just don't. There, there's a lot of of tension between what they hold to be true and then checking out each other's hypotheses and realizing, you know what, the evidence that we're saying we have, we actually don't, okay? Anyway, the point of all this is this. And I don't have a lot of knowledge of, you know, the, you know of science and stuff, but, but I have a little bit because I've studied worldviews and, and um, naturalism, which... Um, Darwinian evolution is based on naturalism, which uh, essentially matter is eternal. Matter has always been. Mind is not. So uh, I just started talking with them. And it became apparent to them that I was not just another religious person who just wanted to preach to them. I actually wanted to engage with them intellectually and I knew some of the things they were talking about and I was able, by the grace of God, to to talk to them in a way that um, I pray, you know, left a seed in them and to put a little pebble in their shoe of, you know, Darwinian natural evolution has so many problems and the more we are learning from microbiology, because that was his discipline, the more problems we have. And so we, we went on and we spoke. Uh, you know, to, 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 to get knowledge is a very loving thing to do, to reach out. It's one of the ways we love our neighbor as ourself. And it's costly. It's costly. 
But it's so rewarding. And if, and, and if we are His, and He's called us to make disciples, then, you know, you start where you're at. Don't compare yourself to anybody here. And just a little bit at a time, add to your knowledge base. And one more, one more little thing before I go back on. Should I start already? I should start. Huh? Oh, I did. Okay, well, I guess I did. Anyway, okay. Um, the, the, you know, not, uh, not everybody welcomes truth. Not everybody wants to know the truth. The reason people reject Christianity is not always because um, there aren't intellectual, rigorous responses to their objections, because there are. But um, the heart, again, like I said, the heart of man is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who could know it, Jeremiah says. And in Romans, Paul says that we suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. So don't think that people just uh, reject Christianity for only one reason. There are many reasons. We're going to get to it. But right now I want to finish on the issue of the enemy of truth. Okay, this will we'll wrap up this big section here. The enemy of truth is relativism. There's a lot of enemies. Uh, I think uh, too much TV, uh, too much entertainment. Those are enemies of truth. Um, mental sloth, being lazy, uh, is, an, is an enemy of truth. But specifically, I want to talk about relativism. Because it is. It is. Um, it's here. It's here. In the political arena, uh, you know, in sports. Um, it, it's, it's, it's just we breathe that air. And so... Um, you know, maybe you've experienced somebody, you know, in a witnessing situation where you start telling them the gospel, you know, and they say, well, you know, <laughs> that's true for you, but that's not true for me. Ever hear that? Anybody ever? Yes? Okay. Yes. Sure. Sure. I, I have too. Uh, maybe some of us have said it. You know, I don't know. But um, that's, that's relativism. And um, I want to I deal with three kinds of relativism and then show five flaws of, of uh, specifically moral relativism. But first of all, there's what's called cultural relativism. The culture. Cultural relativism is descriptive. Just the facts. Just tells you what it is. It's not making any judgments. It's just describing a state of affairs. Okay. Uh, they focus on the facts of a, a, any particular culture. Now, the problem is that there is a difference between facts which describe and values which prescribe. In other words, they tell us what we ought and ought not do. Description, prescription, see, you know, pres- description, you're sick. Prescription, take this so you'll get healed. Okay? So, uh, for example, in the, in the abortion controversy, uh, this th- this issue here is usually uh, the problem on both sides. Uh, the issue usually is the value of human life. Okay, both sides value human life. The issue is on the facts, which says that is is the fetus actually a innocent human person, or is the fetus an intruder in the mother's body? Okay, so, so what's the problem? 
The problem is that the apparent moral discrepancies between cultures, for example, demonstrates that no objective values exist. In other words, if it is okay for uh, people in Spain to... Um, I don't want to go there. Forget that. Um, mm, Just because there's disagreement in cultures over the facts, over morals, does not mean that there is no objective truth. Do you see that? Just because there's disagreement, it doesn't mean that there is that there isn't something that's objective out there. It doesn't follow. What does follow is that, yeah, there are differences, and maybe one of those two cultures have a better justification for holding their views as opposed to the other view, the other culture's view. I don't know if that was helpful. Anyway, so the second one is called societal relativism. And this one is prescriptive. In societal relativism, um, you are to do what your culture tells you to do. What your culture says to do, well, then that is what you ought to do. Okay? Okay. And um, there's obviously different cultures which disagree on these things. Now, for example, if you were a Jew, if you were Jewish in Nazi Germany, and the Nazi uh, uh, countrymen were ordered to not only take your land, confiscate your goods, and ultimately exterminate you, that would not be a good thing. That is not good. The law of the land many times is completely and totally horrific. So just because something is lawful does not make it right. For example, Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. went completely and totally against what was accepted in our culture. But the fact that he did, the fact that he did, the fact that he protested, okay? If in fact this is true, that what society tells you, you ought to do, you ought to do, then he was the worst perpetrator. He was a criminal because he was going against the norms of our culture, our society. So you've got societal relativism. Third, you've got individual relativism, which essentially means that you are king. You are the ruler of your own uh, destiny. You are the master of your own destiny. What you say is true is true. What you say reality is and what's meaningful, well, then that's what's meaningful and that's what's reality. Okay? So if you take this to its logical conclusion, somebody who thinks this way, you're going to have anarchy. Right? You take it to its logical conclusion. Who's the champion here? The sociopath, right? The person that just does whatever they want to do without regard for anybody else. You know, we have laws to protect people from people like that. But it gets worse. 
So the enemy of truth is relativism. And relativism comes to us in three ways. Cultural, societal, and individual. Cultural relativism describes facts. Societal relativism prescribes oughts, what I ought to do. And individual relativism, you, you end up with a sociopath. You end up with the individual being the final um, measure of, of what is real, what is true, what is good. Okay? So I want to respond to five flaws of relativism and specifically moral relativism. You're going to experience this, Don, in um, dialoguing with, with people because uh, we're breathing this every single day. Um, so first of all, the first flaw of relativism is that you can't tell me I'm wrong, right? You can't tell me I'm wrong. If what I do is right for me but not right for you, we can't even talk about this. If I want to commit adultery on my wife, and I don't, okay? Yes. And destroy the life of my children and my family and my friends, okay? Then it's fine. I can do that under this view because you can't tell me I'm wrong. So that's not right. There's something in us that just says, red flag, red flag, something's wrong here. And that's good. That's good. Secondly, the second flaw is that you can't complain about the problem of evil. And we're going to be talking about that the third week. I was wondering if we might be able to talk about that the fourth week. I think so, because that one's a real sticky one, man. The problem of evil. Okay. If relativism is true, then the objective against God based on evil vanishes. For example, Fidel Castro did nothing wrong to my wife's uncle when he tortured him and put him in jail for 14 years because he disagreed with him. He didn't do anything wrong under this view. All he did was just live according to his views. I hope that bugs you. Okay, this is huge. Thirdly, the third flaw is that you can't blame me or praise me. And I got to tell you this right now. <laughs> okay. Uh, when our kids were in public school, uh, the, the, the public schools... We're just trying to build up their self-image any which way they could. And one of the things that they would do is give them a note that said, caught you for being good. Right? Caught you for being good. Which I thought was odd. It's like, well, you're supposed to be good. Right? But I guess they're trying to reinforce good behavior, so they're doing that. I'm like, okay, fine. Now in AYSO, in soccer, right? depending on the age, um, we're trying to teach the kids to just have a good time so we don't keep score. Okay, I'm going, what do you mean you don't keep score? What do you mean you don't keep score? No, everybody's a star. Everybody's great. It's like, what are you talking about? Okay. 
There's something in us that we love to be praised for doing something well, and we hate being blamed for when we don't do something well, right? Am I, am, you know? Yeah. yeah. So what happens is this. If you can't blame me or praise me, and the reason is because there's no standard to measure what I'm doing, whether it's good or bad. So praise or blame is like completely and totally relevant. It's like it's insignificant. It doesn't have any weight. We got habits. We love being praised. And we hate being blamed. So if the notions of praise and blame are valid, then it stands to reason that relativism has got to be false. It's got to be false. 